and then just keep on going. Yeah. But on the show today, we have Sean Carlock from Defensive Edge. Um, if you're listening to the Avery Adventures, I did one with him probably two or three years ago. Yeah. And we covered all the nuts and bolts, and, and we'll kind of skim over that today. But we're also going to talk about, you know, long-range shots, long-range shots that gone awry. Yeah, his recent moose kill. His re- recent moose kill. And you're also a bow hunter. Yeah, I've, I've killed an elk in Idaho with everything you legally can. Nice. Rifle, pistol, shotgun, muzzleloader, and a bow. And I'm proud. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you, Sean, because you've also recently jumped onto Instagram. You know, my kids finally browbeat me into it. I just I couldn't put them off any longer. Well, what's your uh, What's your Instagram handle? It's defensive dot edge, isn't it? I think so. Defensive. Yeah. So if you guys want to follow defensive edge and Sean, it's defensive dot edge. So my kids jump on me about this. Oh, Dad, you got to be on Instagram. You got to be on Instagram. Okay, fine, I'll do it. And so then I thought, well, I get. I'm way behind. I got like four pictures on there. So I start putting this stuff on there. What's the first thing that happens? Dad, you can't put that many posts on in one day. And then they start beating me up. About, I'm like, all right. There is, you know, when you're first getting started, there's definitely a bunch of stuff that turns people off, I would say. But consistency is definitely the best. Sure. You know, like a post a day or whatever. Now that I'm very inconsistent. That's what Luke, that's what Luke's here for. He's going to keep it. He's going to put us back into the consistency zone. Well, I got into all my... Uh, on my photo bank and posted up some hunting photos and the stuff I really wanted to have on there. Mm-hmm. But from here on out, I think I'm going to do a lot more stuff inside the shop, you know, taking pictures of stuff we're working on and how we're doing stuff and some things like that. And from our, our class photos from in the summertime when we're teaching long range classes, I'll live post some of that stuff on. Well, there. that's a good topic. Why don't you tell us about your class? Uh, our, our basic class, we'll shoot out to like 2,000 yards in the basic class, or sometimes a little longer. Sounds a little more than basic. <laughs> well, really, that basic class, we start out with what is a minute of angle and how are we going to use it? I mean, very nuts and bolts stuff. And by the end of day three, we're shooting out easily over a mile if the wind's a little rough. And if we have good conditions, we'll shoot over 2,000 for sure. Got to pull that a little closer, Sean, just so you, like four inches. So how does a guy sign up for your class? Uh, real easy. Just get a hold of me and sign up. But um, most years, classes are full by the end of March. Okay. So if that's something a guy's serious about doing this year, you'd want to get on that pretty soon. Okay. You have multiple levels too. You have like a beginner, intermediate, and then advanced, but you also will, if you have like five or six guys that want to come and do kind of a custom class, you'll also do that, correct? Absolutely. If you get a group of guys say, hey, we want to come down and we want to go over these things, we'll custom make a class curriculum for them. And sometimes what's easier, if you get a group of guys that live in Phoenix, I did this for a group of guys. They said, hey, we want to have a class, but why don't we have you down here? It's much cheaper for us to bring you down here than all of us to come up there. So as long as they have the right kind of setup and stuff, I travel out to go do those classes as well. So there's two things I've known. I've known a few people that gone through class. You got some wicked breakfast. (laughs) Really? What I I hear, they have a wicked breakfast, (laughs) wicked meals just in general. Well, well, you got to say something more than that. No, I'm a no, booty. no. I mean, I, Sean can tell you, but I want to. He can after this. Then you have like a hundred and fucking twenty inch TV screen. Is this true? <laughs> Out in the mountains? Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, you can put up with crappy conditions. Like if you happen to get some rain or something, as long as you're dry and you have good food, and we have the TV there just to do the classroom portion of the class. But it got to be a pretty big deal after a while. I started putting on our send it videos and we started having feature movies in the evening and stuff. But class starts and runs the entire day. From the time you get up at breakfast, people are asking questions. Hey, what about this in the program in the ballistic app? What about this? What what happens when, when I'm out in the field and this happens? So class pretty much runs 15, 16 hours a day before it's all said and done because there's this evolution of learning going on from the time people get up and start talking. Are you, are you guys sleeping in the mountains? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like going oh, to shit. a nice elk hunting camp. You got wall tents. Wall tents and cots and big outfitter pads. And Why don't we go do the class, Ryan? <laughs> I'm in. You should. Let's do it. I got room this year if you guys want Perfect. to take one. Let's do it. Yeah. Do you, what, do you have like a – I don't want to sound like – you know, do you have like an intermediate or advanced we can go to? <laughs> I want the beginner. <laughs> Every, everybody has to take the beginner class first. There you go. Even and, you, Ryan Avery. And you will enjoy it. Because, oh, I'm sure I would. Well, here's one of the things we do that a lot. We use 22 rim fires. You can move that. 
any way you want it. Pull it closer to you or do whatever you want. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. We use 22 rimfires. Curriculum goes like this. We have a half a day of classroom up till about lunch or so. And then the whole second half of that day, we shoot 22 rimfires out to like 200 yards. And, of course, they have the BC of a ping pong ball, so the wind is no <laughs> joke with those things. Yeah. But we'll do lots of drills. Like ever since you were a kid, probably somebody always told you, you can't cant the gun. You can't cant the gun. You got to have a level. Don't cant the gun. How come? Uh-huh. And how much difference does it make? So we'll do canting drills. We'll get them canted over. And at 50 yards, you know, you take a Harris bipod on a 22 and you cant it over to the limit of the bipod and it'll shoot at 50 yards an inch, inch and a quarter off, mm-hmm. you know, in windage and a quarter inch low. Boy, you're talking about minutes of cant doing that. And when people see that firsthand, they're like, okay. It's like seeing it on a smaller scale almost so that they can reference that to long range. Absolutely. And that's what we do. Okay, you guys, you just learned what a minute of angle is. You know, well, that's like two minutes at 50 yards. What's that do to you at 1,000? You aren't even in the game, Uh you know. So we do a lot of drills like that. Good place to start. You don't want to miss out on that. It's a good time. How many days is it? Three days. Nice. Usually do them Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We get done with that first day of basic stuff, and we'll zero in the big guns at 100 yards, last thing on the first day. And then we spend two days out in the mountains shooting uphill, downhill, across canyons, places where wind blows over in a ridge, in between, in the middle of your shot, places where you can actually learn some stuff. Has Ryan ever been to your class? No. No. Ryan, what the fuck? Why not? Well, you know, between – well, I really curse Sean, Sam Millard. Jeff Brozovich <laughs> for getting me into this fucking long range sport uh-huh. because that, those are kind of like uh, Sean. I don't, we went through this in my last podcast, but I'll, I'll touch on it again. I walked into center target sports, 2000 ish, 99, whatever, yep. what, what, 1998, 99, something like that. It was only there for a year. Well, and he was a gunsmith and he had all these whiz bang. He had a, I think he had night force stuff up there and, and I, and I don't know if he, even he's just dumb punk kid walked in and he, he took the time. I, was, I asked him like, you know me, I asked him like 5,000 questions. He answered <laughs> it all. I went home. I actually had, got called, went back into the army, got called back in the army. So kind of on hiatus. When I got back, I kind of dabbled in it. I was still hunting with a stick bow. And then <clears throat> I ran, went out to, I don't even remember this, but I went out to your shop. This was, when did you move into your shop and bathroom? Oh, we were there when we first moved to Rathrum, uh-huh. went to center target for a year, year and a half, and then back to the shop so when, I could get some work done. Well, yeah, because I met you had a bunch of people like me walking in there asking you questions. <laughs> well, and, and that was part of the deal. I, I was okay with that. But boy, at some point, it just it was just too much. I'd have to go to work at three or four in the morning so I could get like four hours of work in before they opened the doors. And, and boy, the party was over, you know. So Sean is the reason why you're shooting. Well, he was definitely like... Like I read everything, and but he was the guy that was already doing it. What I and I said this in your last pod, last podcast, but I did with him before it was cool. Yeah. Sean was doing. I know you said you didn't start into it, but you were the guy that people came to locally because the internet was not humongous like it is now. And he was the guy you would bounce ideas off and ask questions. And I know he got tired of talking to me, but he wasn't. He wasn't ever rude to me, or and he he just told me what you know, told me the basic things I needed to know, and then I couldn't afford his high-end, you know, rifles at the time. And then I kind of bought this and bought that and had him work on some shit. I know he didn't want to work on and he fixed that. And then I got to know Sam Millard. I don't even remember how I met Sam, tell you the truth. And uh, we started shooting together a lot. And then I met, brought Jeff Brozovich through Sean. And then we started shooting. And anyways, roundabout way, those four guys or those three guys kind of Weren't, weren't, uh, I can't say idols, but they were the guys that freaking I looked up to when I started shooting. It still doesn't answer the question. What? The question was, why haven't you been to his class? Oh, because I feel like I shot with Sam enough and Sam had been to his class a couple of times that I was pretty much soaking okay. in that information. So what early you're on. really saying is, is you're a perfect 10 and you have nothing to learn. No, I learn every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm like, there is no experts. If you say you're an expert. I always look at you kind of with a sideways glass glance because I don't believe in experts. Somebody's always learning. I would say Sean is as close to an expert that I have seen. If you look like his ES video, I don't know why anybody, he put out an ES video on what that is. And it was so, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but it was so simplistic, but so educational all at the same time. I was like, why the fuck didn't somebody else put out a video like this? Right. Well, some people just weren't getting it, you know, and I asked the question in class. 
You know, the same thing I ask in the video. Hey, would you rather have a rifle that shoots half a minute but has a six-foot-a-second ES, or would you rather have that quarter-minute gun that's got a 40-foot-a-second ES? Boy, I'll take that low ES gun every time. And so you, you show them, you know, and you say, hey, this is what happens at distance with those numbers, and this is why you want that. People are like, oh, okay, I get that. Oh. But until then, they're like, yes, what is ES, you know? I, I look at SD. I don't give a crap about SD because SD can hide a bad shot, mm -hmm. and they're all important to me, mm -hmm. you know? Does a guy bring his own rifle to your class? It kind of sounded like you have a lot of stuff for them to shoot. Uh, they certainly can. Uh, they can go one of two ways. I've gotten pretty good at uh, – interviewing people on the phone about their gear so that they don't show up with inadequate gear and have a miserable time. Certain brands, certain items, I've never had last clear through a class, and I'll tell them that. You're welcome to bring this, but when it likely fails, I'll have a rental rifle that you can Likely. <laughs> what likely fails? I like it. What do you well, say to that, that guy wants to bring a Tika? Yeah, if he wants to bring a Tika, that's fine. I don't have any problem with Tika. Mostly, it's optics. The guys wanting to bring optics that just are not up to the task. If you could say one bad optic, what is it? I hate to beat these anybody up that much, but I have never had a Huskama scope make it completely through a class. Huskama. To the point if somebody says, "Hey, I've got a Huskama blue diamond on my blah blah blah," say. That's great. If you want to come take our class, you have to run a rifle from me. And I, I tell them why. Mm -hmm. I just, I just, my experience has not been good with them. You know? I already know the answer, but what optic do you prefer? Oh, I'm a big night force guy. I, I, I've tried them all. Well, I, I shouldn't say I've tried them all. I've tried quite close to all of the high end optics. I've tried Schmidt and Benders and U.S. optics, and and if somebody came out with a new one that they touted as being the latest greatest high-end optic i'd try it and check it out for sure you know but i've just had such a good track record with night force it's like heart barrels we've had such good good track record with them for over 20 years pretty tough for me to shy away when you have that kind of background with mm -hmm. them you know mm -hmm. but on back on your classes before we get on to the next is so you still have openings you still have still have uh seven or eight openings left for this year Last year, we filled the entire class schedule from the waiting list from the year before. Oh. So. And what does a class run a guy? Uh, $1,500 for three days, and it's pretty much all inclusive except for your gun and your ammo. So you bring your gun, your ammo, your teddy bear, and your toothbrush, you're good to go. <laughs> how many How many rounds do they need in their rifle to finish the? If they bring 100, that'll be plenty. Okay. You know, I tell everybody 200, but mostly that's so that they can go through class and they'll still have ammunition that the same ammunition they used in class, they'll still have during hunting season. Because I know that I get guys that'll come take a class in June and then not touch their gun again till hunting season. I at least want them to have all the same stuff when they go hunt. Have you ever had somebody kind of video document your class as kind of like a promo deal where they can kind of see what it's all about? Not so much. Not like that. Uh, well, maybe if we come do it, we can bring Luke along and absolutely. he could take video the entire time and put together kind of a package for you so you can roll it out on Instagram and put some videos on your website. Yeah, we can figure out something like that. Yeah, that'd be fun, actually. That'd Every year I'm like, oh, I'm going to get some video. I'm going to get more still photos of guys shooting at class. And then and, you guys get so busy. Oh, probably... you get so busy talking and teaching and, and talking about how this wind's blown over this and you see that happening, that uh, that stuff all just takes a backseat to it and never gets done. Huh. You know? That might be a good plan. That would be a good plan. I'd like that. That'd be fun, too. Okay. From what I understand, you're a good teacher. I'd like to think so, but – so. So a guy that comes and takes your beginner class, what is he competent with leaving? Like what, what do you teach? I've heard about like offhand mile long shots and shit. Are these, is there truth to this? Mile? It's far. Well, it was farther than a mile, it wasn't was, it? It was 2,255 yards. Holy moly. <laughs> offhand. Offhand. Well, well, that's I, not, that really can't be luck. If you were to run the statistical analysis that you were going to hit your target at that distance. I held a, held it, a three shot group at that far. That was just over a minute. Holy moly. But that, that was just kind of showing off, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, that wasn't really about, Hey, we're going to shoot stuff offhand. You know, we were just doing some testing and stuff and, and showing guys what is possible, you know, if you, uh, if you want to work on those kind of things, you know? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
But the average guy comes into class and I ask him when we're first starting classroom stuff, what do you want out of this class? And boy, so many times I get, boy, if I could just kill something at 600 yards, <laughs> you know, and I tell them all the same thing. And most of them look at me like they're like, I'm smoking crack uh-huh. and say, by the end of tomorrow, you'll be so bored shooting a thousand yards. You won't believe it. Wow. And they're like, whatever. You yeah. know? I mean, but by the end of it, they're shooting a mile and they're whining because they missed by four inches where they were aiming, you know, and it's like, Okay. For for me, it'd definitely be calling wind, especially in a mountain terrain type of environment. I'm horrible at wind. Oh, that's the game. I yeah. mean, once you get your curve dialed in and your app set up and stuff, you rarely ever miss an elevation unless it's the wind blowing up over some terrain feature somewhere. So, boy, that is the game. Is your preferred ballistic tool a, like a Kestrel 5700 Elite? Uh, no, I have one and I use it. You uh-huh. know, I keep the Kestrel as more of a backup now. Uh, I have for a year or so now, almost a year, been running the SIG Kilo 10K binocular. Really? Yeah. And honestly, I bought it because of the rangefinder. You know, 10,000 10, yard rangefinder. I thought, well, based on my experience, that means it'll probably work pretty good to five or six. And that is about where it runs out in the field, you know, trying to range regular targets. And that's plenty. That's twice as far as a guy will ever need even practicing probably, you know. So if it had only been just its laser range finding ability, I'd have been tickled to death. But in addition to that, after I get to playing with it, the ballistic program and profile in it is great. How far have you validated that data out to 2,900 and some change. And this is the built-in calculator in the SIG. Yeah. This is, is it the, applied the ballistics? BDX. It is applied ballistics then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How do you get around that blue? You know, the blue doesn't bother me. I'm not prejudiced to color. Yeah, but he's probably, he's probably not. <laughs> are you, are you, are you, are you, are you he's laughing at color blind. <laughs> no, I, I looked at the blue hue and honestly, some guys, guys that are real glass nuts, you know, Oh, glass uh, color abbreviation, blah, 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 blah. I just don't care. As long as I can still spot everything I want, it doesn't interfere with low light stuff. I don't, the blue hue doesn't bother me. It's there. There's no doubt about that. And my understanding is that that is a byproduct of the receiving material inside the binocular for the laser rangefinder to work as well as it does. And there's Mm -hmm. just no getting around it. Now, when you, when you went to Alaska and I'm sure you brought those. I did. Were those your main binoculars for glassing game? Yes. Okay. I, ha- I brought a spot and scope in case distance got big because my friend that lives in Alaska that took me, he says, hey, I've got this knob that sticks up four or 500 feet in elevation in the middle of 46 square miles of swamp. We can see 10 times further than you'll ever shoot anything, but I see these moose within 15, 1600 yards a lot of times and way closer. Some of them only two or 300 yards. But if you can shoot that far, boy, you could get a good moose and it'd be a good time and blah, blah, blah. So I went up there and we did that. You know, I'd have been actually a lot happier if I could have shot one at eight or 900 yards because even as far as we shoot and practice, I really like being inside of a thousand yards because good things are going to happen, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, tell us more about your hunt. Well, I'll finish on the binocular. Real yeah, quick. okay. I validated that binocular before I went to Alaska, and we got out on a very rare no wind day up in the mountains where we were testing, and shot it out to twenty nine some change. And I tweaked the the speed of the velocity in the binocular about seventeen or eighteen feet a second at eleven or twelve hundred yards, and ran it clear out to twenty nine and some change, and got first round hits wow. all the way out there. You know. I imagine there's going to be some guys listening to this podcast hearing that 2,900 number and probably in a little bit of disbelief because uh, we're talking, you know, just short is a, a 1.1 1. 1 and a three quarter mile about. Yeah, I imagine. Well, all they have to do is go on to our YouTube channel or onto the website yeah. and hit that YouTube video. And there's one where we're shooting 2850 on there and put a first round hit on the in boy within less than a foot of the center of the rock within down to inches a point wow. of impact and following it up with another shot that's inside of a minute of it. Yeah. So it, it's doable. Is it going to happen all the time? Is that a high percentage shot? Of course not. Yeah. You know, some days you read everything just right. And some days you don't, you know, yeah. if 
that binoculars have you you should check out the Revic when it comes out. Same chassis. Right. Less blue. I think even a better laser. Is that gonna really? have that's not gonna have applied ballistics in it though? No, it has oh. gunworks engine, but it has the same engine that's in. You've done the the gunworks review right. on that same same basic engine. Now, do engine. they have a magnometer in there? Do you know? I don't know. I only had it for a week, but it's not out yet, but it's going to be out. But it has, I had the 10K and I had Vortexes and the SIG comes back pretty fast. The Vortex comes back in like a half an hour solution. <laughs> and then the, the Revit. Say a half an hour. <laughs> about what it felt like. <laughs> and then the Revit came back and it has better glass. That's the thing I, because okay. you do a lot more scanning, but I'd like to see your I would I'd reach out to Gunworks and ask him. Is, get is a magnometer a compass? Compass. No. Magnometer, magnometer is not a compass. Oh. That was I my first. Educate I didn't us. even know what yes. a magnometer was. I had tell to look us. it up myself. A magnometer reads the gravitational pull where you're at and will tell you what latitude you're at. That's how they can make the the ballistic engine calculate oh, for Coriolis and Spindrift. Automatically without automatically, having to put your direction of fire in. It's got in. a digital compass and a magnometer. So one will give you a compass heading and the other oh, one gives shit. you your latitude. What? Yes. And that was the big thing missing from the gunwork stuff all along is they were always, you know, with the old BR2, which was a great piece of gear. Yeah. You know, but it was limited to about 11 or 12 and it quit giving you a solution at 13, but it was limited really to about 11 or 12 before Spindrift and other things started taking over and messing with you that it wouldn't correct for. This thing corrects for everything. Does it tell you, like, can you, will it give you that number? Will it give you what latitude you're at? Yeah, lat and long. Yeah, you, can tell go, you? you can go into the menu and anything that it's reading, pressure, temperature, shot angle, all that stuff, you can scroll down through it and see what it's reading. And you're telling because, us that it's the SIG 10K you're talking about right now yeah. that, that has the magnometer built yep. in. Okay. So one of the things I did was took it out of the inside of the truck. When I first got it, it was cold out. It was still early, early in the year. And uh, it's maybe 35, 40 degrees just above freezing, and it's 70 degrees inside. It takes about 20 minutes or so for the binocular to come down to ambient temperature. But I could scroll through there and check and see what it was, you know. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I carry a 5700 for backup, because you got backup ballistics, you got backup atmospheric conditions. Mm-hmm. So magnometer. Always. What the? I never heard of it, but you do <laughs> a really you said, good job. I just pictured magnet because yeah, that's what magnet I thought. towards the pole, right? But so, so, so we could clarify. So magnometer along with the compass, instead of having to do direction of fire on your Kestrel mm-hmm. in order to calculate not spin drift, but Coriolis, right? You don't need, you don't need direction of fire for spin drift. No, you don't need direction of fire. But for Coriolis yes. effect, which is basically the curvature of the earth, you need to know what latitude you're at and what, direction what yep. degree direction you're pointed in in order to compensate for that absolutely wow and you can bring up if i remember right you can bring up and see a compass heading inside there too correct yes you can yeah and we're going to try these six i don't have the revix long enough but i would i loved your review on the br2 right on the gunworks br2 you did one oh a long time ago and yeah. i liked your review on the sig so it'd be interesting to see you like a kind of a i like versus like a verse the revic versus oh, the sure. 10k i'm gonna see i'm gonna talk to man and i might See if I can help you out with that. That'd be a fun test to do. I yeah. mean, I'm always interested to see, you know, how everything stacks up. I mean, that's kind of how we I always are find that the Kestrel, are. the Kestrel tends to be like a little laggy when it comes to when you're, when you're doing your compass. I never feel like it's like you calibrate it, right? Like you do the spin thing and right. it never feels right to me. Like the whole idea of spinning it, like I get it, but, it, and then you, if you just slowly rotate around with it, it's like the degrees don't respond to the way that you're turning. And that always has bothered me. Ah, I got you. A little bit. I mean, and, and there's, maybe, a, there's a guy on Rockslide that did a test with it, and it's pretty close to his compass. Really? Yeah, like when it sets it, he was always within a couple degrees. Hmm. You know, I like Kestrel stuff. I like applied ballistics. I've used both those products for a long, long time and still a big fan of them. But the thing, the advantage that the 10K has over everything else is speed for me at, at the big shot. When you start talking about having to enter in uh, compass heading and latitude and all that stuff, you quite literally can pull up a 2,900-yard shot if you have everything dialed in and make the right wind call and hit the button. And in a second and a half, it'll tell you what to dial everything up. Mm -hmm. Unless it's a vortex, it's like three days. (laughs) 
<laughs> it seems like you got a little bit of an issue. With I it. don't. I just was, I was sitting there with him one day and I had that Revic and I had, I didn't have a 10K with me, but I had the Vortex and the Vortex is AB2 and has probably the best app I've ever seen for a rangefind binocular. But man, they've got to fix their speed because sometimes you're hunting whitetail or bear on the move. You're like, oh shit, it moved. <laughs> You'd be shooting for <laughs> yeah. half an hour. It can't be. And it's like four and a half seconds is what it is. Yeah. So anyways, not That's a, a knock on off. <laughs> All right. Getting on to your Alaska thing, but I, I want to preface that with how many times do you think you've shot over a thousand yards at an animal at any, just practicing. Oh, practicing thousands. That's what I wanted to get to thousands before the hunt shot before yeah. the hunt. You, you've ripped yeah. off thousands and thousands of shots past a thousand yards. Not only that, but oh, teaches yeah. people how to shoot freaking two miles. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is year number 17 for classes. And I've had over 400 people through our classes, not including military guys that we've done big distance classes for the military. Wow. So, yeah, there's been quite a few. And you were talking about the expert thing, you know. I still pick up stuff from students. I still teach myself stuff when they ask me questions that I don't immediately know the answer to. And I'll tell them, hey, I'm not. 100% sure. I think maybe this is going on, but I'll have an answer for you in a few days. Well, I'll, I'll figure it out. I think know? teaching a subject is the absolute, I don't want to say easiest, but best way to, to learn everything you don't know Absolutely. because of the questions. Yeah, for yep. sure. Well, you know, you've, on the internet, everybody's an expert and mm-hmm. that's what drives me nuts. I know very <laughs> few people that I would say that I look up to and, and you're one of them in the long range space. Because there's so many fucking blowhards. There just is. And I'm not, that's not just in the shooting world. It's in every world. That's so a fact. Be careful who you watch. You know, go look at their credentials. Go look what they're doing. Because anybody can start, start a shooting school. Because I've been to a few whack jobs. So. There's, there's a handful of shooting schools that guys bought our long-range how-to video and started their own shooting school. Mm. Like, okay, whatever, you know. But... The unfortunate part of the internet, and I get this all the time, guys come to class, hey, I was on the internet, and I stop them right there. I cut them off. If you say, I heard this on the internet one more time, I'm going to put you in your car and send you away. Mm-hmm. You know, Because there's so many guys on there that have not shot, have not done any of the subject matter. They're regurgitating stuff they heard or read somewhere else and don't have any actual knowledge, which is a shame because the other percentage of people, there's some very knowledgeable people on the internet you know, with that are sharp. I mean, on top of it, but there's so many of them that just cut and paste answers from somewhere else. You know, I'm sure it's the younger guys too. Like when you get in that class situation, like coming out to your class, I mean, be in the moment, like you're there to actually learn in person and shoot the gun and see what bullets do. You know, don't just, the nice thing is, is you can, like you do, you start with the 22 and you move through it and you can actually show them on rocks at unknown distances, you know, at at crazy distances, you can show them what actually happens rather than read about it and, you know, there's a whole different, a lot of sniper typers. Sniper typers. <laughs> That's yeah. a fact. That's a fact, yeah. and there's a lot of gun plumbers. <laughs> yes. Gun plumbers and sniper typers. I uh-huh. like that. That's yes. good stuff. So, okay, so to get this, he's thousands of shots past 1,000 yards. And I'm not talking thousands of shots past 100 yards. We're talking 1,000 yards. So tell us about your moose hunt. Okay, so I went to Alaska, and a friend invited me up. Hey, you got to come up and, and go on this moose hunt with me. You know, the distances you can shoot, you'll be able to kill a nice moose up here. We'll have a lot of fun. And so I go up and uh, without uh, dragging this story out because it was quite an adventure, I fell in the river on day three and was wearing a bug net and almost waterboarded myself. And <laughs> it, it, was, it, was quite, it was typical Alaska. The bugs try to kill you. You know, there's bears fishing in the creek. It was, it was Alaska. So... We see this moose on day four, and we're pretty sure he's a legal bull. He's got to be over 50 inches or have a triple brow tine. So I'm trying to measure him with the reticle in the night force, which I could do pretty well. But the problem was that the distance at the time, we were between 15 and 1,800 yards when we saw him the first day. And uh, I couldn't see enough definition, even at 22 power, to see the points. So I could measure the width of the palms. And it keeps coming out like 48, 49 inches. I'm like, boy, no way in hell am I taking a shot at a moose that might be an inch under legal. Not happening, mm. you know. And you couldn't see the third brow tine. Ended up being a 57-inch moose and had triple brow tine on one side. So Oof. it was all kinds of legal. 
but it took us a day and a half to figure that out. Finally, on day two of seeing this moose, and it would skirt from one group of alders through some openings into this other group of alders and then never come out. And it'd do that every morning with this hot cow leading him. So on day three, we know he's a legal bull. We see the triple brow time, but can't get set up. Day three, we're waiting for him. We know where they're coming from. We're all laid out, got a great shooting position, and uh, the wind is almost nothing. It's like one and a half, two miles an hour. So he comes out, and he steps right out in the open in this little meadowy-looking area, which I later found out was a foot and a half deep water and had swamp grass growing out of it. <laughs> you know, I, you look at yellow grass around here. Hey, there's a little meadow down there. This is perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was a swamp. <laughs> yeah, it sucked. Ooh. But he stands out there and he's just looking at that cow and I get dialed up, make the wind call, pull the trigger and the water, there's a water geyser. That's when things start to go a little downhill, kicks up like two feet in front of his face to the left. I mean, I'd have been off like two and a half, three minutes because the distance was 1552. You know, it was a long shot, but I've shot twice that far practicing and the conditions were great. Um, I've backed away from shots that were closer than that before because the conditions sucked, you know, and I just wasn't confident in them. So I'm, if I'm not mentally notching the tag when I get behind the gun, I'm not taking the shot, you know. So I get behind it. Boy, everything's good. I've validated this thing out to 2,900. I know that this is way doable. And when I pull that trigger and my buddy calls, he said, you hit two minutes to the left of him, clear out. In front of his nose, it's like, and then he steps off behind some brush and he's gone. I'm like, God, so we get to looking at the numbers. And I thought, boy, if I was off two and a half minutes, that's this, I'd had to have misread the wind by four miles an hour. Mm -hmm. In a a relatively calm. In a relatively calm. It had had to been over double what it was. I'd had to have completely screwed that all up. And I thought. I'm not above making a mistake. I checked the windage. Did I turn the knob the right way? Yes, turn the knob the right way. I just I just don't think I missed him by that far. I've killed deer before in the past where you shot clear through them, and it kicked up a geyser of dirt behind their back, and it looks forever like you shot over top of them. Perfect heart shot. You know, mm-hmm. you see it, and somebody else will call, oh, you shot right over top of his back. You're getting loaded up, and then fall over. So we get to talking about it. And while we're talking about it, this hot cow that he has not been more than 20 yards away from for three days comes walking back the way she came from. No bull. No bull. He's laying over there. Uh So we unass. We go hike down. And that's a long hike. Oh, boy. It's a long (laughs) hike. And every step is out through the swamp. You're wearing hip waders from the time you roll out of the sleeping bag till the time you go to bed at evening, Mm. you know. We get over there and we catch up with this moose and he's laying right there, his head's up. Mm-hmm. Uh, ooh, that's not good. So I shoot him and he's done. No problem. When we do the autopsy and we're boning out and packing out for the next two days, the bullet took a really odd path. I hit about three inches off the mark. I was aiming square for the center of the scapula down midway down the scapula. And I hit just off the edge of the scapula toward the head up body to the left. The bullet gets into the brisket area, rides around and up and comes up under the neck skin over the jaw and out the top of its nose. So that was the bullet guys are in the water up there out to the left, but it wasn't because it blew the shot out to the left. It, the bullet took that odd course through the body like that. That's, I, that's happened to me one other time, not the same path, but where it didn't penetrate and 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 do what you thought it was going to do at a much closer shot at only 400. And what is the cartridge and bullet so the guys know? Oh, we're shooting a 338 Terminator. So it's shooting a 300 grain bullet at 3150. Nice. You know, and even at that distance, well, at that distance, it's going to have substantially more energy than a 44 Magnum has at the muzzle. Mm. And you take that shot all day long with a 44 Magnum, you know, standing five yards away mm-hmm. and you just kill them dead, you know, mm-hmm. any, any guess on the impact velocity, impact velocity. Oh, I'd have to look, but I'm going to say, which 300 grain or two, uh, the burger, uh, OTM elite hunter, elite hunter, okay. elite hunter. 
Um, I've used a bunch of OTMs. I've killed a bunch of stuff with OTMs too. But uh, the Elite Hunter, I think, expands a little better at lower velocity. Mm-hmm. They both seem to shoot about the same. I don't have any trouble getting either one to shoot. Mm-hmm. So You'd still think the impact velocity is up 15, 1800 feet per second. It's got to be at least 18 at that far. Yeah. Because it doesn't go subsonic until you're out there about 24, 2500, depending on what elevation you're shooting at. We were right at sea level. We were at like 38 feet elevation. So, <laughs> you know. so it like had to almost ride down the rib cage. Yeah, it had to have rode around the brisket, around the rib cage, and take off up through the neck, over the jaw, and out the nose. It was really an odd bullet path. Wow. Never seen, and I don't think that's bullet failure. I think that sometimes those things just happen. I've taken that same cartridge and shot at eleven or 1,200 yards and killed elk and shot clear through both shoulders, you know, straight as an arrow penetration, you know, uh, right through the scapula on both sides. And, of course, they hit the turf like – just struck with lightning, you know? So was it just the two of you that had to pack that out? Yeah. Two of you for two days. So what, what is that? What You're boning out quarters. Uh, I guess the meat. pounds of boned out meat. Holy. How far did you have to pack it? Well, we lucked out. As we're hiking over there, as soon as we cross the river and hike over there, as soon as we break across the river, we're walking along. Dave's like, hey, stand right here. And he's pacing it off, and he gets 158 yards. There's a little sandbar there where we're not in swamp. He said, hey, if we cut all these willows down, I can land my plane here. It's like, nice. Yeah, well, that's not what I said. I said, you fucking crazy? (laughs) (laughs) And so we we cut all those things down, and he landed that cub there. And he said, I can't take off with you in the plane but I could probably haul a sack of meat back to camp. And then we got plenty of runway there to take off with a real load. And he could just get a hundred pound sack of meat in the plane off the ground in 158 yards and come in and land that baby without eating anything. I got some great video of it. It's super sketchy looking. <laughs> so you had to do wow. nine takeoff and nine land 10 yeah. landings ish. Yep. Wow. And how far was the plane having to fly? Oh, to camp? Not very far, a mile. Okay. But he cut, cut uh, the pack more than a half. Well, we were probably eight or 900 yards from Moose to this little new improvised airstrip. So he cut almost a mile off the pack one way. Nice. So that nice. was huge because after two days of that, I was just, I, I see why Alaska makes people pack the head and the antlers out last. Oh. I, I get that. Well, know? for those of you that want to go do a solo or a, or a unguided oh moose hunt in Alaska. 800 pounds of boned out meat through a swamp. Well, and then some units, you can't bone them out. You have to take the meat on the bones. So you get a big rear quarter and you got to just cut it in half, bone and all, and make two trips to get one quarter out. Do you have to take the rib cage out and everything? You have to take the rib cage. You got to take neck meat up to the jawline. You got to take meat below the knee. I mean, everything. Oh, yeah. You got to take it all. Wow. And you've never, you've talked about, you have seen kind of that same bullet reaction with a 338 wind mag when you were younger? Yeah, I shot an elk when I was pretty young, 18, 19 years old. And at the time, of course, that was a long time ago, but at the time, <laughs> uh, 338 wind mag with a 250 grain partition was the end all be all elk killing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I shot this bullet 450 and I hit him about six, seven inches below the spine and right in the crease. I mean, a good shot by, by any standard. And the bullet hit right on a rib, rode the rib up to the spine, pulverized four or five inches of the spine, and, of course, immediately dropped him and turned almost 90 degrees and rode up and into the neck and stopped right under the jaw, right under the hide. Because when we skinned it out, I recovered the bullet. Hmm. And then we got to tracing that. Never penetrated the chest cavity. Hmm. So it's not a issue of, oh, you were shooting too far and this bullet failed to perform. I think that sometimes those things just happen. I agree. I, I've shot a, a bullet 1583 and hit him right where the neck meets the, you know, neck shoulder junction, I guess yeah. you would. And it just blew a hole clean through him with an OTM 300 grainer. Yeah. And then I shot a moose with your rifle. Well, both of them were with your rifle. One was with a Canyon rifle. One was with an LRKM. <laughs> I shot a, a cow or a bull moose in Idaho at 1700 and either 75 or 60 yards and it went 40 inches across the moose, took out top of his heart, and it was a 300-grain SMK. Yeah. didn't open one iota. So, You know, that brings up a good happen. point. Some people, 
and I talk about this in our class a lot too. Everybody's like, oh, I wouldn't use that bullet. It does this. It doesn't do that. Blah, blah, blah. They've been killing stuff in the continent of Africa for hundreds of years with bullets that don't expand at all because they understand that it's all about penetration and shot placement. You put the bullet on the X, and if it penetrates deep enough, good things are going to happen. You know, if it expands to one and a half times its diameter, it retains 85% of its weight and all this other criteria, that's great. That's just bonus stuff to me. As long as it holds together and penetrates X and allows me to to shoot it well, that's all I really care about. I agree. I totally agree. On, have you ever taken um, – on that moose, I took a cider shot. Have you, do you agree with that, not agree with taking a cider shot if you can't quite read the conditions? I think taking a cider shot is infinitely more responsible than just sailing the first one out there and hoping for the best. I think if you have any question about the wind or the conditions at all – that shooting a cider shot somewhere close to the animal, oh, you might spook it. Yeah, you might, but I'd rather do that than uh, have a bad hit. I really don't want that, you know. And honestly, the few times I've done that, I've never had an animal spook. Actually, just the opposite. If they even recognize the bullet going thump into the dirt, they lock up and they don't move, which is the perfect scenario. They're all focused on it. You know, when they're feeding, you got to be real careful that they take a bite and start to walk toward the next bite of food as you pull the trigger in your time of flights a second or two seconds. And now you end up with a hit too far back. But you throw that cider shot out there a lot of times and uh, they just lock up on what was that thump? What was that noise in the dirt? You know, and stay pretty focused on it and still. And it actually works to your advantage. I agree. Bears are the worst about taking that step because they like they are horrible. Yeah, they just seem like schizophrenics, man. They like do one and they'll spin around and they'll look the other for no apparent reason. And then they'll walk and then they'll take a left for no it's just they're tough. You gotta really pay attention for spotting stalking bears at long range. Well, and they're so hard to recover when you get over there anyway. Yeah, and it's not a you know, not a big kill box on a bear. No. They're thought they're a lot thinner skinned than people think they are. You should shoot bigger bears. I shot the biggest. I shot the biggest bear I've ever shot this year. He's Boone and Crockett, seven oh, two, right seven two in Idaho, and uh, red. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, I'll show you a picture when I get done. Outstanding. But, but it was a monster. They're still. A, they're still like I'm a hacker when I'm cutting them up, and it's like you just barely nick that hide, and it's right through a bear. Yep. You talked about three thirty eight Terminator, so I want to kind of talk about not only a Terminator, your Terminator calibers, but also your plus P. Okay. Um. I know your gun of choice is the 338 Terminator. Can you kind of talk about that and then go down from there? It's definitely my favorite one. It was the first Terminator cartridge that we did. Uh, essentially, it is a 338 Lapu improved. You know, everybody's got their own version of what's improved, what shoulder angle they like to run, what case body taper they are. But uh, it, it's 338 Lapu improved. The thing that sets the Terminator cartridges apart from other people's improved cartridges is that we patented a throating process here. I guess it's been probably 10 or 11 years ago now. And uh, that throating design in there will reduce peak chamber pressure, allow you to add more powder to get back up to pressure, and is good for about 100 to 150 feet a second just on its own. So if everybody else is running there improved at 3000, we're going to be running 31, 3150. And then you have 300, 284. Yeah. There's a whole series. We've got them from 338. We even played around with the 375, but that turned out not to be much of a project, but we've got good solid ones from 338 down to 224. What is, I mean, your favorites at 338, but say, say a non-improved Terminator version what, what what cartridge doctor gets the most benefit from a plus P that's not a Terminator version? You know, the, actually, none of them get the best. They all seem to do about the same thing. Really? That plus P deal, whether it's a 243 Winchester or a 338 Edge, seems to be about 100 to 150 feet a second right in there, you know, almost no matter what it is. I can tell you what we do the most of. A lot of guys will send us their barrel or their barreled action just to have the plus P mod done on it. Mm -hmm. We have done a ton of 300 PRC plus P's. Mm. How do you think the seven PRC plus P will do? I don't know. I, I, we haven't chambered 
we've got a reamer on order. We haven't chambered a, th- a seven PRC yet, but I expect it'll be just about like the rest of them. The only thing that limits you with plus P stuff is you have to be careful about case capacity. If you want to run the same powder and maybe you're running 570 and you about have to smash it all in there to begin with, mm-hmm. if you plus P it, there's not room to put additional powder in there. Mm-hmm. That might not be a great choice, but that's very few cartridges that that's a problem with. When you're ordering reamers like that 7PRC, do you automatically have all your reamers set with a plus P throat? No, what we did, because then I'd have to have another 100 reamers all set with <laughs> plus P throats, you know. So we had uh, tooling ground, and we built some bushed-up tooling and stuff to be able to put the plus P in almost any caliber based on the caliber, not the chamber. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you sent your 257 Weatherby in and wanted a plus P, we could do that, you know. So you can, from 223 to 338, you can pretty much just send in your barreled action and get a plus speed? Yeah, you bet. The one the one other thing, one other situation where you might not want to do that is if you are shooting solid copper bullets that are a bore rider design. Okay. Because part like a of what, cutting edge laser. Like, yeah, like the cutting edge laser. It's a great bullet, but it's not a great choice if it's in a plus P chamber because it has to go so far before it gets to where the bore rider part of the bullet is actually in that land to land diameter where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. I got so. a selfish question. Yeah. We built a six Psalm improved. Okay. Six, five Psalm neck down the six improved. Yep. We plus P it. You think we'll get the hundred? Probably. What? How you much don't case need anymore. Oh, you fuck. So I'm going to build a 16 inch barrel. I want to see how far I'll shut that fucker out of there. It's doing why it's shooting. Why not? It's shooting one fifteen. I think that's the question you need to ask, John. Four hundred, right? One fifteens. <laughs> so I'm shooting a one fifteen DTAC with a twenty inch barrel at thirty three eighty. So we're going to cut it to sixteen. Do you still think we can come back almost to that? You know what? Speed. He's the guy that's responsible for me doing this on the phone once in a while. <laughs> I'll be there talking to somebody listening to this project, going, "What the." F- <laughs> or so just or just why? Why? You, why? So you're saying there's a chance? <laughs> hey, if you want to do it, we'll cut it. You know. Do you, but I mean, do you think that you would get? I mean, not even a hundred. Even if it was fifty to seventy-five, it's because going to sixteen. Do you think you could burn that? Well, if it you, should be what like fifty. We we just average twenty-five feet per second per inch as a, as kind yeah, of yeah. So an we're average. saying thirty-two yeah. fifty by itself. You plus P it, you'd be back with a sixteen barrel over thirty-three. I mean, this is the kind of project you'd want to try. No, these are the kind of projects you want to try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I, I think it could be done. We'll try it. That's all. I, that's I guess all that's, I that's the worst. It thing can't. It can't do. hurt anything, right? Just appease them. Like, well, it could. <laughs> so you're averaging like what I've seen because now I'm on the six plus P's. Is I'm averaging like four more grains. Is that what you see? A powder per average. Oh, for the plus P throating? Yeah. Yeah, somewhere between three and five, depending on how big a case the case is. You know, it's more about case capacity than anything. Uh, you know, when you go when you build a 338 edge and plus P it and you're using H one thousand, you're gonna go from ninety grains probably with a three hundred grain bullet up to ninety four, ninety-five grains. And with a two hundred forty three terminator with that plus P in there, before you put the plus P in there, um you end up only about two and a half or three grains. So it's kind of proportional to the case size. Let me run the six project back by a different way. <laughs> Boy, he just can't help himself. <laughs> can he? What it, he I, said he would do it. <laughs> I know, but this, I just want the listeners to would I also be able to do that and just not push it as hard with the same kind of velocities? You know what I mean? So I'm not, I'm not just redlining it. Like I am a standard you see what I'm saying? You're not redlining it by pressure, but you're probably still burning about the same amount of powder to get the same velocity. You got to work with me, Sean. You got like just a little bit. Dude, I'm just telling you how it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to see a 16th inch barrel soon. The other thing that can happen when you when you when you go down that road of, well, if I plus P this and then I can just back it off a little bit and run a little more. Some rounds, actually quite a number of them don't especially like to be backed off in pressure a lot. Like 338 edge just seems to shoot better the harder you push it until you just are scared of the pressure anymore, you know? You built me a, a 300 rum plus peed. And if I tried to baby it, but as soon as I put it on the chip, 
Yep. That fucker's son. <laughs> yeah, that, that happens. It seems like there's a certain class of cartridges, way overboard, way blah, 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 that act like that, you know. Is there a round outside the 338 Terminator that you just love? I know you build like a 260 plus speed. Is there? Oh, you mean just in general rounds or you mean of ones with plus P? Ones you plus P like to shoot. It's not a monster. You know, I I like that 300 PRC plus P as a carrying weight gun. It it doesn't have the recoil of an ultra mag, but it's still got plenty of juice. I mean, guys are shooting 215s at three grand with them. I mean, that's pretty serious elk medicine, but... Mm. You know, you build an ultra mag, especially if you build an ultra mag plus P and guys want to run a, want to run two forty fives or two thirties in it, you're in the heaviest bullet you can. And if the gun only weighs seven and a half pounds, they just aren't that much fun to shoot even with a good break on them. So True. I kind of like the PRC for that reason. Yeah. And we can't let you go without talking about the LRKM, which is probably the easiest gun that I've ever shot. <laughs> uh, the LRKM came about. Oh man, 10 years ago now. And it's a bullpup rifle that I designed and I, it happened at the end of hunting season one year. I had a Canyon rifle and a Canyon rifle is 54, 55 inches long overall. And they're great. And I hunted with one for years and I've got the barreled action out of it, laying on the bench, blowing all the pine needles and stuff out of the stock, getting ready to put it away for the winter. I'm looking at that barreled action. I thought, you know, there's got to be a way to build a viable long-range rifle that is not so freaking long. Mm-hmm. You know, because you put it in Everly stock pack and you ride a motorcycle anywhere, something tries to peel you off the bike sooner or later, you know, when that stock's sticking up a foot above your head. And you can't even lift your head up straight because motorcycle helmet bangs into the gun. So I thought, eh, this is bullshit. We got to figure out. And I started drawing pictures and making notes. And it was about a two year process. And we came up with the LRKM, you know. And uh, an LRKM with a 30 inch barrel is not as wide as your four wheeler. It'll fit inside of a 44 inch Pelican case. It's about 40 inches, right? Yeah, about 42, 43 inches. Oh, is it a 30 inch? Yep, with 30 inch. Can you imagine that with a 16 inch, six millimeter barrel? Oh, good God. <laughs> Here it goes. <laughs> but no, it, it Let's is. Let's SBR and put a suppressor on it while we're at it. <laughs> <laughs> but that LRKM is just built right. It's just easy to shoot. You know, I, I knew what I wanted. And mm. that thing is the expression of what I want in a long-range hunting rifle. But a couple of things happened, and I'd love to say that I knew this was going to happen. I was just smart. But they were kind of a happy accident. Uh, one of the things is, is the bipod is only runs about five or six inches from the end of the barrel, you know, by design. And it puts a tremendous amount of the weight bias back on the rear bag. So you take a Canyon rifle and throw a scale under the, the back of the stock, and it's going to put two or two and a half pounds of pressure on the scale. You throw an LR cam under there, it puts eight, eight and a mm-hmm. half pounds. It's just physically easier to get in behind a rear bag, anchor up on that thing, and everything's solid, and the recoil rides better. I don't have any problem it's, even with that kind of horsepower spotting my own shot. That's the thing about it is it's, it just, you know, I always have a bad habit of shooting when the recoil, you know, the recoil, the scope, the crosshairs go up and left. Mm-hmm. And when I shot the other cam, even with whatever, 338, 338 Terminator, um, it just, they almost just come straight back and straight forward. And I could spot hits like 400 and out. Yeah. No problem. You make... In all of your actions, you used to run the ones that I, the other cam I had was a bat, but you've also moved on to making, you make your own actions. Yeah. We make a Terminator action now. Okay. We took the bat, which is a great action. And we took a Remington 700 that we'd modified with an M16 extractor and all the stuff you normally do to them. And we laid them out on the bench and said, okay, what things would we keep? What things would we do different? And what unique ideas do we want to bring to the table to make a long-range hunting action? Not to be confused with the bench rest action, you know. Um, So one of the things we did was we loosened up some tolerances that don't have any bearing on accuracy so that you can get a little dirt in and out of the gun without plugging things up, without making things sticky. We made it so it would eject a four-inch long live loaded round. And uh, had to fit a, a 700 footprint so we can use triggers. We can use stocks. You know, you have the, the aftermarket world is still good to you. I, I, I've seen the action. It's great. We even proofed ours. 
which most people, when they build an action, not everybody, but most people, just refer to the yield strength of the materials they're using. We tried to blow ours up. You took like 200,000 PSI, didn't you? We loaded up 150 and got the action beat apart after 150 and loaded it up and shot 200,000 right after that. That's impressive. And, of course, it warped the action a lot, but nothing came loose. Nothing ruptured, nothing let – well, nothing – it blew the – the M16 extractor out of the bolt and vented out that hole. <laughs> but, you know, it didn't rupture a barrel. It didn't rupture the action. Nothing split or banana peeled or did anything weird, you know. Mm-hmm. So, And that's all we were after, you know. If people make a mistake, you want to have a little bit of room for error there for them. What, if you could tell any aspiring long-range shooter anything about why they have – why they miss, why they miss at long range. And that could be 500, 800, whatever yards. What are they missing from? If they're practicing, they're out there calling wind, they're putting their best, best foot forward. You know, they're putting in the time, the trigger time, their fundamentals are good. And I know you're probably, I already probably know what you're going to say, but why do people miss 800 yards shooting at a deer or an elk or a moose or bear or whatever? I think for a couple of reasons, I think because they're hunting, you know, I think that's the, the big reason. I think, uh, a lot of times they don't set up correctly. I I think if you're hiking down a ridge and everything's in your backpack and you're glassing as you go, you're kind of spot and stock hunting with long range gear. I think it lends itself to, oh, crap, there's an elk walking across this little strip in between two pieces of timber out there. And I got to make this shot happen and before he crosses that 75 yards and they get in a hurry. Instead of saying, you know, I just, I just didn't have it all dialed in. I wasn't set up like I wanted to and letting it walk. And that's one of the reasons that we usually hunt by ambush. And I think you do with a lot of that as well. hundred percent. I'll hike miles in the dark with all my stuff in a pack, just so I can have everything laid out and be set up. As soon as it gets light, guns laid out. I've got pressure and temperature back. If I had a device, we entered, I get all that stuff entered. Well, it's still dark. And as soon as it's light, boy, I only had a few things left to do. I got to put in some yardage. I got to make a wind call. Everything's laid out. I usually have a chance to watch them for a second. And I think that makes a big difference. You're taking a shot on your terms. Yes. Yes. Gotcha. Control the rules of the engagement. Yes. Absolutely. What do you see in class that makes people miss? Uh, Failure to read the wind correctly. I I mean, the single biggest failing almost everybody has, and myself included, is not making the correct wind call, whether it is just not reading the direction or the speed correctly, or whether there's an intermediate object between you and the target that the wind's blowing up, over, around. Is there a dead spot you're shooting through? That kind of thing. And you can you can talk about this, but shooting in the mountains is a lot different than shooting on flat prairie. Absolutely. The the military guys that we work with, we get good guys, you know, I mean, tip of the spear, sharp guys, and they go to sniper school and they shoot out to a thousand meters and they get pretty damn good uh, on a flat range, reading a wind flag and shooting a thousand meters. And then they get to go maybe to advanced sniper school where they shoot bigger platforms and they're shooting out to 2000 meters. But again, on a flat range, and they get pretty good at that. And then they get deployed to Afghanistan or some other shithole. And they're up in the mountains at 15,000 feet, shooting down to 10,000 feet. And the wind's blowing all over the place. And they've got all these effects that they've never trained or practiced in. And their first around hit percentages beyond a 1,000 meters take a steep, steep nosedive, which is why they're coming to us because – I mean, we've just been shooting in the mountains and have developed these things like I started long range hunting in the late 80s, way, way before it was the cool thing to be doing, <laughs> you know. How how fast do you think you lose that skill? Like how proficient, how much do you have to shoot in the mountains? And then say you take a year off, do you lose that? I mean, do you lose that? I don't know. I couldn't live without shooting a long range rifle for a year. I don't, I don't know if I could yeah, really not- answer that, but I can tell you that with almost any other shooting skill, it's a perishable skill like anything else. If you go to perishable, go to a, that's yeah, the word I was looking for. Perishable. Sorry. If you, uh, if you go to a class in the spring and you don't pick up your gun till fall, that's bad. That's not going to go <laughs> don't well. Don't be for bad. You. Don't be a bad boy. That's right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, well, Sean, thanks for coming on. Do you have anything else, Jake? I'm good. 
I learned what a magnometer is. <laughs> magnometer. <laughs> Every day we learn is a good day. Well, go tech, go check Sean out at defensiveedge.net. Your Instagram was what? Uh, defensive.edge. Mm-hmm. Defensive.edge. If you have any questions about this podcast or for me and Jake, uh, give us an email at podcast at shoot the what's, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, either call the shop or send me an email. If you go into our website, defensiveedge.net, you can access my email through there and uh, send me an email. Happy to answer it. Perfect. We just went over that. Go to defensiveedge.net. I just doubled it up, baby. And his email. You always said repetition, repetition. There repetition. you go. His, his email will be fixed this week because he's had email problems. <laughs> and he, I don't know what he did to his email, but it was a doozy. I didn't uh-huh. touch it. Yeah. You set it up. Uh, it's definitely whoever's fault it is it's Ryan's (laughs) fault it's Ryan's fault fault. so again if you have any questions about this podcast or for me and Jake go to podcast at shoothunt.com and thanks for listening thank you